0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is We Are Debtors. We're Debtors. Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 12 through 13. And it is uh, a joy to be back with you this morning in our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And we have been working together over some weeks now through the text of chapter 8, where essentially in chapter 8, Paul is exulting in, he's rejoicing in, reveling in, glorying in the security of our salvation. And he's reaching a climax, reaching an apex that we're going to work through at the end of chapter 8. Uh, and all of this, basically, th- these blessed truths for the one who has been united to Jesus Christ through faith. We have a blessed salvation that we've been delivered to, a blessed indescribable gift that has been given to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is summed up, if you will, in Paul's triumphant, climactic statement that opens this chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now that, that blessed state is the extraordinary outcome of one, a justification provided by grace alone, through faith alone, that's chapter four. It's made possible by the gift or the imputation of Christ's own righteousness, that's chapter five, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, that's chapter six, resulting in our death, to the condemning power of sin, to the condemning power of the law, chapter 7, and the end of our enslavement to remaining or indwelling sin. Uh, And that leads us into chapter 8. The power or the regulating principle of the spirit of life who now indwells the Christian, who now indwells us, through our union with Jesus Christ, he has made us free from the regulating power or principle of sin and death. We've been set free, brothers and sisters. And what the law was incapable of doing because of the obstinacy of our of our flesh, of our sinful flesh, God himself did by sending his own son. God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son that we might have life and peace. What a glorious blessing, right? What a great salvation. That is the blessed state of the Christian. That's the blessed status of the one who has turned from his sin in repentance and entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ in faith. Amen. Now, if that is your blessed state this morning, if that's your blessed status, then that blessed state, that status, will have an impact on the way that you live your life. That shouldn't be lost on us. I think we're we're pretty clear on that fact. But that is lost on most of evangelicalism today. If these things are true of you, that will have an impact on the way that you live your life. This is transformative information. Transformative truth. And in chapter 8, Paul essentially explains the, the manifest evidence... That bears witness to that state or condition. If this is your state, if this is your condition, your life is going to change. And Paul now in chapter 8 essentially explains the evidence that bears witness to that condition. How do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? How do you know that you belong to Him? How do you know that you are in union with Jesus Christ through faith? How do you know? What is the fruit that bears witness to the root? You can know that you've been brought into union with Jesus Christ. You can know that you are in vital union, an unbreakable union with the Lord Jesus Christ through his spirit who now dwells in you. That's how we know. It's through his spirit that now dwells in us. The one who is indwelt by his spirit, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. You see, that's verse 9. The one who is indwelt by his spirit is the one who has his mind set upon the things of the flesh, on the things of the spirit. The one who is indwelt by his spirit has his mind set upon the things of the spirit. The one who has his mind set on the things of the flesh, he is the one who lives or walks according to the flesh. He is the one who lives or walks in the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, the one who runs in the same dissipation, the same debauchery that the rest of the world is running in. By contrast now, the one who's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one whom is indwelt, the one who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the one who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. The one who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is the one whose heart is filled with the things of the Spirit. The one whose affections are drawn by the Spirit. The one who, whose will is driven by his affections to walk or to live after the Spirit. and all of that, to the end of that, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in him. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. In other words, he obeys. He obeys. He lives by that principle of the Spirit, namely God's law. God's own inviolable character. He lives after the law. He obeys. The first table of the law fulfilled in this that he loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not in perfection, not perfectly, but as the direction of his life, as the pattern of his life. He loves the Lord his God. The second table of the law fulfilled in this that he loves his neighbor as himself. Not speaking again of perfection, but of pattern. That love, that affection bears fruit. That's the point of Paul's statement here. That bears fruit the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled in those who walk according to the flesh but rather the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in those who walk according to the spirit that effort to walk in holiness that striving that pursuit of holiness obedience in accord with the spirit that's not what saves us and it's helpful to remind us of that fact we don't earn salvation by walking according to the spirit that effort, that pursuit of holiness is not what saves us. We have to keep the the cart in the right place before the horse, right? But that walk according to the spirit, that walk in holiness and obedience is the evidence that we have been saved. And verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That brings us to our text the text under our consideration this morning, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, thinking of all these things, with all of these things in our mind and our thoughts, what is the conclusion then that we must draw from our understanding of these things? When we come to this point with Paul, and really thinking from uh, chapter 4 now all the way through chapter 8, in particular the first verses here in chapter 8, But when we think about these glorious truths, this salvation that we've been delivered to, this gift that has been given to us, what is the conclusion that we must come to? How then shall we now live? Are we going to continue on in our ignorance? Are we going to continue to wallow in our sin? Are we going to continue running in the course of this world? Sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. Is that how we're to live? No. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, what's the conclusion? We are debtors. We are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, in contrast, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Led by the Spirit of God to walk according to the Spirit. Led by the Spirit of God to obey In the power of the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God to live, to love, to serve, to witness, to worship in the strength of the Spirit, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do we know that we belong to Christ? Because His Spirit dwells in us. How do you know that you're a Christian? Because His Spirit indwells you. Your life is transformed. Therefore, brethren, what's the conclusion? We are debtors. Do you see Paul's train of thought? One leads to the other. Paul here is speaking to believers. He's speaking to those in the church at Rome. He's speaking to us this morning who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he includes himself in the exhortation. Paul has called himself a debtor, Romans chapter one, right? He concludes, based upon these truths, we are debtors. These truths that we have been discussing, what does that mean? It means that these truths place us under obligation, They place us under obligation. I recognize that you say that in most churches today, they'll run you right out of the place. (laughs) No one wants to think about Christianity in those terms. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that these truths place us under obligation. We are obligated. It is our duty. Sin has been condemned in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse three. We have been set free from the enslaving power of sin and death. We are no longer lackeys to the flesh. The Spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit of God is at work within us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brethren, we are debtors. Now, that word, primarily used in the New Testament, to describe a person who owes something. They owe something. It's a state or a condition in which a person has become responsible for an obligation. Now, that understanding is clear from the New Testament use of the word. In some cases, in the New Testament, that word, ophelitēs is used of a debt of sin. For example, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord prays, prays forgive us our debts. That's this word here, ophelitēs It's referring to a debt of sin or a debt of guilt. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who incur or accrue debts against us. Offenses against us, Ophelotes, right? Speaking of a debt. In Luke 13, the Lord is speaking of those on whom the tower at Siloam fell. And he asks, do you think that they were worse Ophelotes, worse offenders, or had incurred a greater debt than you have? The point is, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Why? Because you have incurred a debt of guilt or a debt of sin, ophelotes. But here, it's, the word is used in a positive sense. And I want us to see that. Turn with me to Romans 15. Let's look at the usage of this word in a couple of places. Romans chapter 15. Very important to understand this point. Romans 15, Paul is drawing the letter to a close. He reassures now the church at Rome of his plans to visit with them on his way to Spain, to enjoy fellowship with them. The trip that doesn't quite go as he anticipates, Paul is going to be arrested in Jerusalem. In verse 25 then, Paul explains to them, Now, though, I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Now, the the church in Jerusalem is predominantly Jewish, made up of Jewish Christians and Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, um, made up predominantly of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He's going to minister to the states in Jerusalem because, verse 26, it pleased those from Macedonia. One of the primary churches in that region were the Philippians. We have a letter to them in the New Testament. Uh, And Achaia, the church in Achaia was the church at Corinth. It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. Now, Paul mentions the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says, he describes them as severely afflicted, afflicted and exceedingly poor. That was, those were the Macedonians, severely afflicted, exceedingly poor. And the church, churches of Macedonia rejoiced to give, exceedingly poor, rejoiced to give and to give well beyond their means. They begged Paul. Paul said they implored us, begging us with much urgency that we would receive their gift and their fellowship in the ministering to the saints. How did the church in Macedonia, those churches, how did they view their giving? They viewed it as fellowship. We're participating in fellowship with all the churches in giving to saints who are in need in Jerusalem. Now, Paul holds up the Macedonians before the Corinthians in Achaia as examples of love. Holds up their example as an example, a testimony of love. Verse 27 It pleased them. It's an understatement. It pleased them indeed, and they are their ophelites, their debtors. They were well pleased to give from the heart. They didn't have to be compelled to give, they didn't have to be convinced to give. But at the same time, they owed them a debt. That's what Paul is saying. They are their ophelotes. They are their debtors. In other words, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, were under obligation. Under obligation to give. Why? Verse 27. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them immaterial things. Do you see the connection between the two? In other words, the Macedonians specifically, Gentiles more generally, were the beneficiaries of blessings that came to them through the Jews. The Jews were committed to the oracles of God. To whom pertain, the? this is Romans 9, right? Paul says, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, all of that came through the Jews. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So what does Paul say to the Macedonians? What does he say to the church at Corinth? He says, you are debtors. Paul says, prepare a gift. I'm going to come through. I'm going to receive the gift from you. And it's right that you should give. And it's right that you should freely and cheerfully give. But what does Paul say to them? He says, you are debtors to them. There is another reason. There is a duty that undergirds their joy. There's a duty that undergirds their gratitude. And Paul calls their attention to it in Romans chapter 15. The Gentiles, in other words, were blessed to partake of their spiritual blessings spiritual blessings that came to them through the Jews therefore their duty before god in gratitude to god in honoring the lord and in loving those saints in jerusalem their duty before god was to minister to those saints in jerusalem and minister they reaped spiritual benefits from them but now their duty is to minister physical or material benefits to them material things they are to let or geto oh, render service to them. That was their duty. Now, notice with me from this text in Romans fifteen, the reality of that obligation didn't dampen their joy, did it? Right? because Paul says you're obligated. Uh, if I used another dirty word, we say you're required, <laughs> or it is your duty, or uh, you're obliged to, or you must, or someone comes along and says. You are commanded. We really don't like that one, right? Paul says you're you're obligated. Did the reality of their obligation dampen their joy one bit? Not at all. They were they were, they abounded in joy, and it was the. the the abounding riches of their rejoicing that overflowed in liberal generosity. That's what Paul says in second Corinthians chapter eight, their joy led to above and beyond the call of duty, right? Did their indebtedness, did their obligation to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, did it diminish their zeal? Not a bit, not a bit. It, it was almost as if the obligation was a technicality <laughs> because they were so zealous, because they were so joyful. They begged. The, the word implore there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 literally means they begged. They begged Paul for the opportunity to participate in that gift. Do you see? They begged to participate. It fleed, it pleased them to fulfill the obligation. What does that mean for us, brothers and sisters? It means that our obligations to God are not burdensome for the Christian obligation to God is not burdensome. Commands are not his commandments are not burdensome. They're not oppressive joy killers. The Christian from the heart. If the spirit of God dwells in you, the Christian from the heart will rejoice to obey the commandments of God will hunger and thirst for righteousness Paul said that they gave according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. That's the heart of a Christian. That's the heart of a Christian. Often, to our shame, and if everyone here is being honest with themselves, we've all experienced this ourselves before, often we find that our heart is most easily exposed in our attitudes about money. And we all of a sudden get tight-fisted. We, we find often, to our shame, that our attitudes are exposed when it comes to obedience or duty or submission or the commandments of God. There was a time years ago, if you've been here for any length of time, you'll know, where for me or one of our brothers to stand here and to um, charge the people of God with their duty to obey the law of God or to obey God, um, there was pushback against that, bristling against that. Um, You were going to get emails that week (laughs) if you stood up here and made statements like that. In this church, we can... If we don't think rightly about these things we can think wrongly about these things and bristle against that which should be our joy which that should be our driving and compelling desire our zeal our hope Let me give you an example you know we 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 like to we like to say we like to think that I'm going to obey because I'm grateful. And should we obey because we're grateful? Absolutely we should. We should be the most grateful people, and because we're the most grateful people, we should be the most obedient people, right? Joyfully obey the Lord because we're grateful for all that God has done for us, all that Jesus Christ has done for us. We should obey in love and in gratitude. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ should compel us, as Paul says, right? But we like to say that we'll obey because we're grateful, but do you always feel grateful Or do you always feel that desire to obey? Even when we don't feel like it, we have an obligation. right? Paul says, if willingly, I have a reward. I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I have a stewardship. Necessity, necessity has been laid upon me. Paul is a debtor. You, brother, you, sister, are a debtor. You have an obligation. Do you see? That should not squelch or dampen your joy. That should not diminish your zeal, but fuel it. Fuel it. Let me give you an example. You have an obligation to obey your parents, don't you? To honor your father and mother. That obligation is based upon three particulars. One, it's based upon your relationship to them. They, that person, your father... It's your father. Your mother is your mother. They're related to you in that way. You are their son or daughter. So one, it's based upon your relationship to them. Two, it's based upon what they have done for you. They brought you into this world, and they can take you out. No, that's, 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 I heard that when I was young, but it is. Brought you into this world, I can easily take you out. Uh, no, you, think about it. You, you've, you've experienced, you've been the recipient of, of great blessings Immeasurable, immeasurable blessings from them. So one, it's based on your relationship to them. Two, it's based upon what they've done for you. Three, it's grounded in the fact that all of the riches that we enjoy, both material and otherwise spiritual, come from the Lord himself who gave everything, including his own life for us. Based on those three particulars, that principle is found in Matthew chapter 10, verse eight. Freely you have received, what? freely give freely give freely you've received freely give so is your obligation to honor your father and mother is that really some oppressive joy-killing duty no but is it a duty yes it is the lord enjoins that commandment upon us paul understands well the nature of that obligation here in chapter 1 paul himself describes describes himself as a slave a dolos of the lord jesus christ And Ophelotes, a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Did that, did Paul's understanding of his obligation dampen his zeal? No, not one bit. He says then, so as much as is in me, as much as is in me, I am ready. I'm biting at the bit to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? He's ready to fulfill his obligation. And to do so with love and gratitude, of course. To do so in joy. But he's ready to fulfill his obligation. So in Romans 15, those in Macedonia, those in Achaia, were indebted to the Jews. In Romans chapter 1, Paul has been given the gospel to preach to the Gentiles. So he is indebted to the Gentiles with the gospel. Our own indebtedness then, in Romans chapter 8 verse 12, should compel us then to ask two very important questions. To whom are we indebted and what is the nature of our indebtedness? We are debtors. It should be our joy to fulfill that obligation. To whom are we indebted and what is the nature of our indebtedness? First, the Bible is abundantly clear that we're under obligation, that we are debtors. Who are we indebted to? Now, Paul answers the question for us first in verse 12 in the negative. In the negative. We are certainly debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh anything. We are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. By the flesh, you remember, Paul is referring to that that regulating principle, that governing power of sin that remains in our members. It's it's a, a power or a principle at work in the faculties of our soul. That's what Paul refers to by the flesh. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul refers to those who walk according to the flesh as those who conduct themselves in the lusts of the flesh. He describes those who walk according to the flesh as those who fulfill the desires of their flesh and they are children of wrath like the rest. In Galatians five, the flesh is that principle or power of remaining corruption within the Christian that wages war against the Spirit. If you remember that text in Galatians 5, the flesh wars against the Spirit. And these two principles, the flesh and the Spirit, are contrary to one another, contrary at every, every point. At every point they fight or war against. They're in conflict with one another. The flesh says yes, the Spirit says no. The Spirit says yes, the flesh says no. Right. At every point they're in contrast to one another. Paul describes the one who walks according to the flesh in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, when we walked according to or lived according to the flesh, sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That describes one who walks according to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh anything. Lost or saved here this morning, you don't owe your flesh anything. Stop feeding your flesh. Tempted by sin, stop feeding your flesh. Someone cuts you off in traffic, stop feeding your flesh. All that has done for you is to bring forth death. As you feed it, all it continues to do is to bring forth for you death. You walk according to the flesh and you will die. Stop feeding your flesh. Stop living according to the flesh. You are reaping corruption. Do you see? Romans chapter 6, verse 20. Look back a page. Verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had no concern for righteousness. You're a slave of your sin. Verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What did, that, what did flesh bring you? Your flesh brought you shame. Shame. The end of those things is death. What did your flesh bring you? Your flesh brought you death. But now, verse 22, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Praise God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All that your flesh has brought to you is shame and death. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Wrath in the day of wrath, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That's what your flesh brings you. We are not debtors to the flesh. When you're tempted by sin, Christian, brother, Christian, sister, you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, you need to say, I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything. I don't have to obey you any longer. Don't present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but rather reckon yourself dead indeed to sin. Take into consideration all of these glorious truths that Paul has been teaching us in the book of Romans. And you say, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And present the faculties of your soul as instruments of righteousness alive to God. Do you see? You don't have to live according to the flesh. Paul employed the metaphor of walking in verses 1 through 4 to describe the Christian life. Here, he gives clarity of that metaphor by synonymously referring to it as living, living according to the flesh. Two ways to walk, two ways to live. Right? Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live or to walk according to the flesh. 4, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That is the debt that you owe or the debt that you sow to the flesh. The wages of that life, wages of your sin is death. That's an eternal death. John Murray talks about it in terms of the the broadest scope of that word. We tend to think of death as very narrow. Speaking of our physical death, it's not how the Bible refers to death. The Bible refers to our physical death, certainly, but the Bible refers to spiritual death spiritual death, and eternal death. The Bible calls the second death. A death from which if you die that death, it's a death from which you will never escape. Never escape. Ages. Ages will pass. Eons will pass. And you'll be no closer to relief from that sentence of judgment than when you first began. It is an eternal. As Everlasting as the life is, is as everlasting as the death is. The Bible uses the same word to describe both. Okay? Wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it must surely die. And the only way to avoid this certain and eternal death, the only way to avoid it, is to be delivered from the condemnation of living according to the flesh. The only way to, to avoid it is to be free from that condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4, through 4, to refresh our memories. What the law could not do, in that it was weakened through the obstinacy or the intransigence of our own flesh, what the law could not do, God did. And God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful himself. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and what the law could not do, God did. God condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh that we might be free from the enslaving power of sin and death so that for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Okay, It's only possible, that's only possible through repentant faith in Jesus Christ turning from your sin and entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ in faith. Do that today. That is a futile path, futile existence, and it winds up in hell forever. So then, if not to the flesh, who then are we indebted to? If not to the flesh, who are we indebted to? We can infer and we have to infer from our context that Paul is speaking of our indebtedness to the spirit, to the spirit. Now, This is interesting. Think with me. We're likely accustomed. You're likely accustomed to thinking or likely accustomed to a sense of obligation that we have to God, the father. We're accustomed, maybe somewhat, although many bristle against it, we're accustomed to thinking more that way. The God and father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead an indescribable gift given to us by God god sending his own son that gift has been freely given it's freely given it's a gift of his grace and we have now an inheritance incorruptible undeserved undefiled it is undeserved and undefiled reserved in heaven for us this glorious inhe- inheritance therefore peter says what does he say Gird up the loins of your mind. Language of obligation, isn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind from indicatives to imperatives, from statements of truth, statements of fact to commandments. Now those things are connected. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, rest your hope fully upon his grace, not conforming yourself to former lusts, but rather as he is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. We are under obligation it's clear from the scriptures, isn't it? We're under obligation to be holy as He is holy. The hymn, right? O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We don't like to think of things that way. Oh to grace, how great a debtor, daily. I'm daily, I'm constrained to be. Let the fear of your judgment. Bind me like a fetter. Now, is that what it says? No. (laughs) Let thy goodness, let thy goodness like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Beautiful, right? It's God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. Paul, again, Paul says, it's the love of Christ that compels me. Not Paul's love for Christ, but the Lord's love for him that compels him we're ob- under obligation. We, we often think of the Father in that way, but we're also used to thinking this way with respect to the person and work of Jesus Christ, aren't we? We think with Paul that the love of Jesus Christ for us compels us. We're under obligation. Christ's own sacrificial love drives us and motivates us to serve Christ because, as Paul said this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We judge thus, that if Christ died for all of us, then all of us have died in Jesus Christ, so that, language of obligation here, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Is that a commandment? Yes, it is. It's a statement of fact, but it carries the weight of an imperative, doesn't it? Christ died for us. You, if you're in Jesus Christ, then you have died to sin, You've died to self in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've died in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should no longer live for yourself anymore. Don't live for yourself anymore. We are to live for him who died for us and rose again. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. But here, particularly in Romans 8, Paul is not referencing the work of the Father or the work of the Son. Paul is referencing the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And particularly here, the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Let me put this in the context of Romans chapter 8. Listen with me. There is no condemnation to those in union with Christ. Verse 1. We have been freely given the gift of God's own spirit to to dwell within us. And the spirit has set us free. The spirit of life has set us free from the condemning power of our remaining sin. That's verse 2. This is because God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. That's verse 3. Rather than pouring out that sentence of condemnation upon you and your wretched flesh, he poured that sentence of condemnation out on the flesh of his own son. He did this for the purpose that so that you and I would fulfill the righteous requirements of his own law, that the righteous requirements of his own law might be fulfilled in us. That's verse 4. Put those things together, right? He did that so that you would obey his law. So that you would be given the power to obey, the enablement to obey, the will to obey, the affections to obey, certainly, but so that you would obey. That, the righteous requirements of the law, his own law, might be fulfilled in us. Verse four. The ones, us, the ones, who do not walk any longer according to the flesh, but rather walk according to the principle and power of his own spirit, his spirit who indwells us. The spirit is a principle of life within us because of Christ's own righteousness imputed to us. That's verse 10. And as surely as the Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will certainly give life to our mortal bodies. Verse 11. The Spirit of God has been given to sanctify you, the Spirit of God has been given to strengthen you, to aid you, the Spirit of God has been given to teach you, to give you understanding, the Spirit of God has been given to encourage you, to comfort you, to assure you, to conform you into the image of his own Son. The Spirit of God has been given you to indwell you, to do all of that. Therefore, what's the conclusion, Paul? (laughs) What's the conclusion, brother? What's the conclusion, sister? I'm indebted. I'm indebted to live according to the Spirit. I'm indebted in the power of the Spirit to obey the righteous requirements of the law. Do you see? These things are all connected. Let me ask you, do you believe that those glorious truths Those blessed gifts that have been secured for you by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, given to you by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, applied to you by the Spirit, do you believe that those gifts given to you oblige you in any way? Do you believe that they place you under any obligation whatsoever? Those glorious, Paul is saying that they do. They place us under obligation. And his words carry the sense and weight of an imperative. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We must devote ourselves then. You're a debtor. Devote yourself. Consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart to his work, his service, his kingdom, his word, to a life of increasing holiness, there's no, there's no room for passivity in the Christian life, is there? We can't sit back on our laurels and just expect that spoon-feeding us, shoving it down our... We have responsibility. What does it mean that we are debtors? There's, um, and for, There has been for many years this deplorable stream of antinomianism which runs through the professing church today, continues to creep its, crop its ugly head up every now and then, where people just, you know it's um, you know what we need to do? We just need to believe better. That, that's our responsibility. I need to believe better. God takes care of literally everything else. Does God take care of everything? Yes, he does. But he uses the means of your own effort to do it. That's what we're talking about here. Sanctification, brothers and sisters, is not synergistic. It's not God doing a bunch of work and us doing a bunch of work, and if we don't do a bunch of work, it doesn't happen. Sanctification is monergistic. God does all the work. Our salvation from start to finish is by the grace of God. But God uses means. And the means that God uses to sanctify us and to mature us and to grow us and to preserve us, the means that he uses is our own effort. And so what does he do? He obligates us. Obligates us. You've been given the Spirit Live according to the spirit you've been. It would be like someone coming to you and giving you the keys to an absurdly expensive luxury automobile. (laughs) It's now yours, this automobile. And it would be like you or I complaining and grumbling that we have to fulfill the one condition upon which that car was given to us. What is the one condition that the car was given to us under? That we would drive it. <laughs> that we would drive the luxury automobile. That's the only condition. And it's like, it would be like us complaining and grumbling and griping that I've got to drive this car now. It's, that's, it's absurd. We've been given the Spirit as a gift of God's grace. Live And walk according to the Spirit. Why? You're under obligation. But because you're grateful and because you love Him and because you have the power to obey now in the power of the Spirit, drive the car, (laughs) brother and sister. Right? That's a crass analogy, forgive me. But you you get the picture, okay? Paul says we're under obligation. We are debtors. We must devote ourselves. We must consecrate ourselves. We must pursue increasing holiness. uh, An earnest and zealous pursuit of obedience to the righteous requirements of the law. Why? Because we are indebted to the Holy Spirit. We are indebted to the Holy Spirit who indwells in us and works in us. The Spirit is at work in us by the grace of God to that very end. How absurdly contradictory would it be If, after having been set free from enslavement to the power of sin and death, if, after having been indwelt by the very Spirit of God, we then yielded up the faculties of our soul to the very depravity from which the Holy Spirit has freed us. How ridiculous, how absurd, how contradictory. That would demonstrate contempt, wouldn't it? Contempt for the gift and contempt for the giver. We're to give ourselves over to the very thing that the Spirit has set us free from and to live in that sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Based on those three particulars, based upon our relationship to the Spirit of God, who He is, who He is to us and who we are in Him, based upon all that the Spirit of God has done for us, and is doing within us, applying the blessed work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to us, and then grounded upon the indescribable gift of Christ to us. We are under obligation. Duty rests upon us. Dr. Murray, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. We're under obligation. Incidentally, that does not mean that we earn those blessings through obedience. We don't earn them through our obedience. That does mean that in overwhelming gratitude, with joy and rejoicing, exulting and reveling with Paul in these truths, that we are well pleased to give all of ourselves in service to him. That's the heart of a Christian. If you have the spirit indwelling you, that's your desire. I know it. I know it. That's your desire. If you have no interest in that, you're not a Christian. You don't have the Spirit. The Spirit's going to author that kind of desire within you. Those who are His, hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are not blessings that we've earned through our own effort. They're not the work of our own hands. These are gifts. They're blessings given by the Father, blood bought by the Son, applied by the Spirit. We are indebted to the triune God, certainly, but specifically here in context, Paul describes how we are indebted to the Spirit. So we've answered the first question. Right, who is it that we are indebted to? Second, what then is the nature? What then is the nature of that indebtedness? How is that debt to be repaid? We've already touched on this some. How are we in this present life to discharge our indebtedness to the Spirit of God? How is it that we fulfill our responsibility? Well, Paul presents the answer to us in the form of a contrast. And it's a contrast between two very different ways of living. Verse 13. For or because, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the principal course, the principal end of that life. You live according to the flesh, you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption, you will die. However, by contrast, if you discharge your duty to the spirit, your indebtedness to the spirit, and if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. That's the end of that course, that way of living, everlasting life and peace. What is the nature then of our indebtedness? How is our debt to the spirit to be repaid? By the spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body. That's how we discharge our duty. By the Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. That presupposes a battle, doesn't it? Presupposes engagement. Presupposes activity, work, effort, zeal, diligence, stick to it, it It implies work. <laughs> it implies work. By the Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. It's active, not passive. There's no room in the Christian life for passivity. Amen. And for many, and I, I would... I think we need to have a sermon on this particular issue, maybe. Um, it's not something that we, we see in this church, but many, many, many that we talk to, many that we witness to, uh, many in evangelicalism, many professing Christians believe that they have discharged their duty by going to church on a Sunday morning, sitting down, listening to a nice talk, or a not-so-nice talk, uh, um, singing a couple of hymns, shaking a couple of hands, saying hello, going home, living the other six days entirely for themselves, and then showing up the next Sunday to do the same thing all over again, and that somehow showing up is the full the fullness of our duty to the spirit that Paul enjoins us to here in Romans chapter eight. That is a a mass deception, a mass deception. The body of Christ lives together and invests together. Uh, We are to invest ourselves in one another. We're to love one another. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. We're to obey him, we're to serve him, we're to work in his vineyard and not to be lazy or sluggardly in that work, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And there are commands throughout Scripture, commands that are to be obeyed. And uh, some look at those commands like they're suggestions, and they just come Sunday in and Sunday out and believe that's the extent of their duty. And they don't like it when I or someone else tells them, you think that's the extent of your duty? (laughs) They bristle against the fact that the Lord expects from them obedience, obligates them to obedience. But for the Christian, it's our desire, it's our hope, it's our joy, it's our, 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 our heart's desire is to obey the Lord, to pursue a life of holiness, to pursue service to him. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Once again, Paul set before us here, life, And good, death and evil, blessing and cursing. When Paul refers in verse 13 to putting to death the deeds of the body, Paul is referring to what we commonly understand as the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin. It's a subject that we'll benefit from considering more fully next time that we're together. We won't uh, begin that conversation now. For now, I'll simply summarize Paul's contrast and our indebtedness to the Spirit in the words of John Owen on this very subject. To summarize, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. (laughs) Listen to Owen. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. You see what Owen's saying. If you're making any progress in holiness, you're making that progress walking, trampling upon the bellies of your lusts. You're not going to get there any other way. You're going to have to fight and claw your way over those things. <laughs> Don't think you make any progress if you're not walking over the bellies of your lusts. He who does not kill sin in his way takes no steps toward the journey's end. If, you're, if you believe that you're walking along a path to heaven, and that path seems to you to be fairly broad and easy, And a lot of people are on it. (laughs) It's not the path to heaven. That's the broad road that leads to destruction. What Owen is saying is that the path that leads to heaven is a path through which it is difficult. And you are trampling your own lusts along the way, fighting them as you go. He who does not kill sin in his way is not active and engaged in killing sin, mortifying the deeds of the body, takes no steps towards the journey's end. You're not making progress toward heaven. He who finds not opposition from it and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification is at peace with it and not dying to it. Sin does so remain, so act, and so work, even in the best of believers, while they live in this world, that the constant, daily mortification of it is all their days incumbent upon them. And the people of God who've experienced that would say, amen, would affirm, would affirm that. The nature of our indebtedness to the Spirit is that by the Spirit, we should put to death the deeds of the body. In giving yourself over to live according to the flesh, you give yourself over to a cruel, cruel, An evil and wicked and worthless slave master. You you think you're living it up in your sin, doing what you want. You're doing. You're you're enslaved to your flesh. You're doing what your flesh wants you to do. You're a lackey. You're a lackey. You're on a choke chain, and your flesh is just dragging you along. You're doing whatever your flesh wants you to do. You're a slave to sin. That's your life. Faced with temptation everything, sin just rises up in your flesh, right? James, that temptation entices your own fleshly desires, your fleshly will, it's dragged away and sin is conceived. Sin, fully conceived, gives birth to death. It's a cruel slave master. And what does he pay you for your wages? What does he give you? What benefits do you derive from that wicked slave master? Death, shame, guilt, things of which now, believer, you are ashamed, cursing. What obligation do you have to such a master? If that's the benefit that you, you derive, that's what you get for being a lackey to sin, to just sitting there fulfilling the desires the lustful desires the lustful appetites of your own flesh what wages do you get from that a fleeting pleasure lasts for a moment that it once has gone away you live this life and then you die and you have hell for eternity that's what you reap from that master what do you owe him absolutely nothing are you indebted to him absolutely not You're not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Turn to Jesus Christ and live. Turn to Jesus Christ and live. He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll change the desires of your heart (laughs) and then give you the desires of your heart. He's a gracious master, do you see? A loving, gracious, compassionate master. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and live. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen? Amen. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this instruction. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your commands. Thank you, Lord, for these strong words of the Apostle Paul obligating us to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. In light of all that you've done for us, Lord, it would be absurd for us to think that we can go out and live uh, in the flesh, in those very things, under that very power and control of that wicked slave master, the very things that the Spirit of God has freed us from, it'd be absurd to think that we could go out and live that way and that somehow we're on a path to life. It just doesn't work. We understand that and we're obligated, Lord. Strengthen us by your Spirit. Give us understanding by your Word. Spirit of God, please illumine our understanding. Help us to learn these truths, to embrace these truths, Um, plant them in our mind and in our heart. and Spirit of God, please cause them, work within us to cause them to inflame and to fuel our affections for all that you've done, for all who you are, for the excellency of your person, for the blessedness of your work on our behalf. And may our mind, our affections drive our will to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh may it be to your everlasting praise and glory who have secured for us such a, a beautiful, a wondrous, uh, indescribable salvation. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.